it's actually, you know, going from 1,000 to 10,000 is not much harder than going from zero to 1,000 one, and going from 10,000 to 100,000 or 100,000 to a million. To me, these are all about equal steps. So when you're at 1,000, you think, oh, I'm so far from like a, a million. But actually, you're like three steps away, I think. Um, three, three kind of like viral growth spurts away. Tim Urban. Writer, illustrator, co-founder of Wait But Why, and the man behind one of my favorite TED Talks of all time. Wait But Why is a website where Tim writes on subjects like space, romance, AI, procrastination, almost everything actually, as he puts it. It's basically long-form blogging, and Tim's are the longest blogs I actually read by a mile. Each post is accompanied by Tim's drawings, usually featuring his iconic stick figures. I send this blog to all my friends every single time I read one. The site reached mainstream prominence after being shared online by no other than Elon Musk, who went on to collaborate with Tim directly. In fact, Tim was invited by Elon to spend a few days with him, which he then wrote about, and like everything else he writes about, it's pretty amazing as well. Wait But Why has built a cult-like following, including fanboys like me, particularly in the startup world. Earlier this year, Tim published his book, What's Our Problem? A self-help book for societies, which explores why everything feels like a mess these days and what we can do to fix things. The book took Tim six years to write after missing numerous self-set deadlines. Finding out his wife was pregnant was the final straw. The baby couldn't be born into a world where Tim still hadn't finished this bloody book. It was finally published in February and Tim's child was born in March, just in time, which is where our conversation begins. You know, I, for me, it's not been like wake up one day and the, the baby comes out and I'm like a whole different person. That's, that, that didn't happen for me. I feel like it's probably a very gradual change over a bunch of years. And I don't really feel like a dad yet because I'm not fathering anyone. I'm like taking care of a little fat ball. So I have this like new little thing that I love and that I'm very excited about and I like to see every day and I'm learning a lot of stuff. But yeah, it's like, it's hard to feel like anyone's dad at the moment. I feel like that probably takes a while. I think in three years when I'm like talking to the person, giving parenting lessons, yeah, I'll feel totally different. But um, at the moment, not so much. My daughter's almost two. And one of the things, one of the things that my friends really appreciated about me when my daughter was born is when everyone was like, isn't it just the most existential, amazing moment of your life? I was like, no. Am I meant to feel like that? Because I don't feel like that. Everyone keeps telling me that I should feel like that. But exactly like you said, I was like, there's like a potato here, which is super noisy. And I can't immediately suddenly well up with all these emotions and this deep connection. And it has taken time for me. So I'm glad that you answered the way that you did, because I think it's also kind of irritating when you hear every other dad just talk about how it was just the perfect moment and has remained that way ever since. Certainly not what I experienced. Now at least there's two of us. Totally. Uh, parenting. Well, tell us a little bit about your parents then. What was childhood like? Childhood was, was pretty good. You know, no major complaints. I was an only child till I was five. So I feel like those are pretty formative years to have been kind of like hanging around in my own head a lot. Then uh, two sisters were born after that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like I was kind of a lot like I am now then. Like, a, obviously, much less developed version, but I do feel like I probably, a lot of the ways I am and the ways I think and the things I think about were not that different from when I was five or six. Um, so, like, I used to be like, think about dinosaurs and how big they were and how crazy it was that right where I'm sitting on this lawn in front of my house, there might have been a T Rex here 
you know, if you just went back in time, like there might've been a dinosaur right here. And then I would think about the planets and like how big Jupiter and Saturn are and how that's crazy and how they look so weird and these big planets and that you can see Venus or Jupiter at night. And that was crazy. And like, look at all the stars and there's more stars than there are grains of sand in the world. So that's the kind of stuff that five-year-old me would have like told you all about. And like kind of the same stuff that like I, I marvel about today. Again, now I would say I have like 50 of those areas of marvel and maybe I had three or four back then. But, um, you know, a lot of curiosity, a lot of kind of uh, awe. And I think that worked out fine. I'm reading this book at the moment. Uh, it's been recommended to me a lot. So I finally got round to it, which is the book you wish your parents read. It's quite interesting on the basis of like the, the overall thesis behind it is however you parent, there's some kind of reflection in how you had a child parent relationship too. Yeah, I think of it a little bit like um, your psyche or your kind of emotional um, palette or your worldview. All of that to me, I, th I think of it as kind of like a boat and your parents are, they kind of hand you the boat that they have in their head. They kind of hand it to you and you, they install this stuff in, the, in you when you're young and now you have it. And if you don't do any self-work or any reflection, like kind you're talking about, you will basically just hand the same exact boat that you were given to your kid and your kid will get in that boat and go down the river and you'll, you'll pass it down the street in the same boat. And, you know, if no one ever reflects, then 10 generations later, you have the same boat for better or worse, including, you know, some trauma from the Great Depression is now, you know, affecting people 300 years later or, or war, or, you, know, you know, all the things that, you know, you don't realize how much the way that your parents raised you has just without them realizing it, it came from their parents and certain things came from their parents and certain things there came from the fact that they like had to immigrate because they were in a war and their sibling was killed in front of them and they, they were starving and had to get onto a, to a new country. And then they get, and that has somehow a little remnants of that passed on to you and you're living your life in a certain way based on crazy experiences from a long time ago. So I, I use that thought to think like, yeah, you got to self-reflect. You got to try to improve. And when you grow, if you go to therapy as a human, you know, we think of it as a selfish thing in a totally fine way, but like you're going to make yourself better. Um, you're going to self-improve. Any kind of self-help, self-improvement that you do, you're, you're also actually fixing the boat. You're repairing the family boat. You're repairing the family psyche. Um, you're making little improvements, which is actually kind of your job. Your job is to actually hand a little bit better vote to the, your kids than you were handed. And to also be compassionate to your parents, because maybe they didn't do perfect, but they probably did a little better than their parents did with them, which is all you can ask of them. If they did a little better than their parents did with them, then they did their job and you should do the same. And eventually, you know, you want the trajectory to be upward where kids are mentally healthier, emotionally healthier, every generation that goes. And, you know, it's hard when the world changes, that brings new, new problems in, but, um, but yeah, I think about this concept all the time. So what takes you into the world of blogging? Can we go from sort of the age of leaving school? Do you go to university? Like, what do you, what do you go into? You know, I had to choose my major at the age of 19. I had no idea what I wanted to do or what I, I knew I liked like astronomy, right? I, I knew I was like kind of interested in physics. I knew I was like kind of interested in, I liked ma like certain kinds of math. I, I didn't know yet that I liked history so much, but like I, I liked, you know, so whatever. And uh, I just didn't know what I wanted to major. And I thought if I majored in astronomy, I was kind of going to be doing a bunch of like, I don't know, like analyzing data and like calculations and not like talking about how big the biggest stars are, you know? So I was like, I don't, I don't actually think that's going to be fun. Uh, so I ended up doing government because it was broad. I could do history and poli sci and philosophy and econ and all that fit under government, which I think was a kind of a good choice. The bad part about it was I had to write like 80 papers in four years because it's just humanities. 
and I hate papers. It's like my least favorite thing in the world. And I would procrastinate on them and I would, I would do them in the last second and I would do that good a job. And it was a lot of reading and I wouldn't do the reading and, and then, you know, I, I would let it get to the end. So it was kind of a bad match for my personality, but that's what I did. But I didn't want to go into that as a career. I mean, in the US, that's very common. People, I don't know really know why, but people constantly major in something they have no intention of ever going into. I graduated, moved to LA, and I was like, I want to write music, but I don't want to write lyrics and songs. I want to write just music, like a classical artist. So I guess I'll do movie scores because that's the way you can have a career just doing music. I did that for a little while. But again, I was a, I had a big procrastination problem, and like I was all all I did in college was sit around and write music. As soon as it was the thing I was supposed to be doing, I found other things to do um, because it was now no longer fun. It was the icky hard thing I had to do, and I also just kind of didn't really realize that if you want to be a happy film scorer, you really should just be a passionate film buff and TV person. That you happens to be that you're gonna your role is gonna be music, but you really just want to be part of making a great movie. I didn't care about that. I wanted to write great music. And it was so, it was kind of a bad match because I would be like pissed off when they put the dialogue over my great theme. It wasn't a great match for me for a few reasons. And I ended up um, blogging on the side while, and, and doing music on the side while I'm running a tutoring company, a test prep company, which was supposed to be my side job and turned into my full time thing. And I started this little blog in 2005 and I wrote a 300 blog posts over six years because, again, it wasn't the thing I was supposed to be doing. So I did it all the time. Uh, and that was fun. I got a little following, nothing huge. But um, I, I kind of found my voice and I realized like, okay, this is, this is like, this is not like college writing. This is fun and you can go anywhere with it. And it's really satisfying to post something. I never went viral with that blog, but it's like, you know, oh, this one like caught on a little bit. There's a lot more people reading this one than, than, than normal. Like that was really exciting. That was like 30. And I was like, I need to just go with one of these creative pursuits full time and had a uh, business partner, Andrew Finn, who was like my best friend since we were five and we were working together on this company and. On what company? Sorry, on the tutoring company. This is the test prep company, yeah. But we had a weird arrangement where, like, we, you know, at one point we were like, oh, let's start like a podcast app. This was 2010. You know, we were like, podcasts are going to be huge. And actually, we were right about that. We probably should have just really followed through with this. But we, um, we built like a podcast app, and Andrew went and kind of built that while I like held down the tutoring company. And then this was like another version of that. I was like, I need to go do something creative, but maybe we could do it like something that also could be a business. So like, maybe I'll go and start like um, a media site, writing site, something like that. And um, you can hold down the tutoring company. And, um, and so that's what we did. And, and so I was like, okay, what did I learn from six years of blogging? You know, and what do I, how do I like level up here and do like a, like a way better blog? And I was like, well, just first of all, just let me spend like 60 hours a week on this blog instead of five hours a week. And, um, you know, I, I started drawing uh, little drawings in my last blog towards the end. That was actually because we had writing tablets in our office because we were doing online tutoring. And so our tutors were like doing their math lessons on, you know, using a, a little drawing tablet. So I had it and I was like, oh, maybe I'll draw in, in this blog post. And then that, you know, became something that I brought into Way But Why, the new blog, and was like, okay, I'm going to draw a lot. That's where it started, 2013, and um, got traction pretty quickly. And so suddenly it was like, there was a lot of adrenaline. because so I was like, oh, there's people here, like serious amount of people. And okay, shit, like let's, gotta, gotta do really, gotta like crush each thing. And so I had a lot of adrenaline, which is really good. It was like, it was really helpful to have like, to have the pressure on, like, like this is going to seem by a lot of people. And if it's bad, that's really bad. And if it's good, that's amazing. You know, it was like, there's the stakes got really high suddenly, which was, I think, you know, I, I think I thrive in that situation. Like the stakes are high. Like I, I, I can work my own procrastination better and really like give my best to something. So I started like, you know, pouring everything into this blog. Um, and that was 2013, you know, 14, those first couple of years. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was nightmarish. It was still like I 
still be cramming the night before I said I would post something and doing the same thing I did in college, but it was a lot more fun. Um, the internet is flooded with content, obviously, like, you know, like a crazy overwhelming amount of it. You can't even, no one even can scratch the surface of what's on the internet. But then a lot of it was like, you know, companies churning out B minus things quickly and trying to get, you know, be relevant at the, in that moment, that day, you know, based on what's happening that week. And, and there weren't that many people doing a really good job, like making great content on the internet. There, there, there were some, there's actually a lot more today than there was in 2013, I think. And, and also, you know, and so I just, I did kind of feel like it's just a big world out there. And if I work really hard and I do like my best I think I'll be making something that will that can catch on that 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 will that people will notice and that uh, so I, I thought that uh, what I learned as I went is that there's there's a lot of people who really you know it's a big again it's a big world and there's billions of people on the internet billions that's just like a number that's unfathomable to us um, and there's and so if you're putting something out there that's high quality even if only a th- one thousandth of people really it really hits for them. So if you take a thousandth of billions, you have millions of people who are happen to have your exact sense of humor and interest level, and they want to read the same level of depth that you do, and they're interested in the same topics and the same style. And that was kind of this this kind of epiphany that I was like, you know, this isn't it's not like a set group of a hundred people, and that's who they are, and I'm trying to win them over. No, I don't. I I can do something where none of that, none of the average hundred like it. But if every Ten hundreds, one person's like, "Damn, I love this." I'm, I have a million people out there, so I started to realize that, like, I don't have to try to, you know, write something. You know, how do you write something viral? Let me try to reviva. Just write something that I would love if someone sent it to me. Like that, I would that I know that if someone just made this really complex diagram about how long the spans of time are, man, I would be so excited if someone said that to me. So that that tells me that there are millions of people out there and it could be different countries could be different languages could be different uh ages and and whatever but millions of people who will also feel the same way once i realized that you know i started to get more confident just like i'm just gonna do it because i would like it even if none of my friends would like it well it doesn't matter because there's a million people out there just like me it's a really interesting it's an interesting point because actually this is also being communicated a lot even in 2023 right you know know your audience but actually, your audience can just be you because every niche is enormous. I think people want to be, you know, unique in the world they're in in some ways. You know, people want to be unique in some ways. But we also don't want to feel alone. When you come across something, I have experienced this myself. You know, you come across some blog, some YouTuber, some author, you know, whatever. Man, this person gets me. This person is thinking the same way. Oh, my God. This, it's such a joyful moment because you feel like, oh, I just found like a best friend creator. Um, and I'm gonna, now I'm gonna go back and read everything they've done. And like, um, so I've had that experience a lot. And I think it's, it's actually that moment when you realize you're not totally unique. It's a good feeling. It's like, oh, wow, okay. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. 
Banter automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanter. Just head to vanter.com slash secret leaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. My favorite Tim blog and thing that I have sent to so many people, the one about time, um, which you did update. Um, and that was actually a really lovely surprise for me one day. I was like, oh, I've gone to share it with a friend. Oh, it's updated. Mm-hmm. Well, there goes another hour. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I think that is, and it is, you know, it's hard on, a, on an audio based podcast. Obviously, for listeners, I would take your phone out right now, wherever you're listening to this, unless you're driving, don't do that, please. Um, but just search Tim Urban Time. And it's a really important one because there are some really fun ways that you uh, you are able to communicate just how long the earth has been around and how meaningless ultimately humans existence here has been. So I wanted to ask you about this particular blog post. First question is, is it generally your most popular? It's funny because you're talking about the one with the, the cascading timelines. Correct. It's, it's interesting because that's actually one of my favorites. You know, that's what it's, it's like, you know, that's what I like did for myself, basically. Like, that's something I would have procrastinated on some other project in college by making some shit like that on my computer that was just for me because it was interesting to like. How long did it take you to research that, sorry? That one took me about one week, probably three days of procrastination. I probably, I probably like, you know, four full work days. You know, it, it's also some perfectionism. With, I'm not a graphic designer, so I'm really inefficient with probably, I think I was using PowerPoint for that yeah. and to like line up all the things and then. It was for it was fun for me because each each successive timeline was like fascinating to look at. Like the same way that if, if you think it's interesting to read it, the first time I made each one, I was like, "Oh wow, man, that's so small compared." And I and I and I was very adamant about making it, you know, like to the pixel um, accurate to scale. So like each thing is the exact right length in comparison to the others. Today, I, I have I would have some better fact check people to send this to, but at the time, this was early on. I was just me, so. You know, I probably had 200 tabs open and just trying to look up like every possible important date. And um, so I, yeah, I love that one. That that one is like, I, I, I like, uh, it's just, you know, it's visual and it's useful. You know, I like it because it's actually like, I, I also find myself, it's one of the few resources of my own that I will use for actual like research purposes. I'll go zip over to it to like check on something. So I love it. It was actually an interesting post because it was like one of the first 10 posts I ever did. And it didn't do that well. 
it was like, you know, it was like, okay. It was just like got some traffic and whatever. And then like 10 posts in, I did a post that went super viral. It was the first really viral post I had done. Which was? It was called Why Generation Why Yuppies Are Unhappy. Really today I would have named it Why Millennials Are why millennials are unhappy. I remember. Um, but millennials wasn't quite a term yet at the time. And yeah, and it just, it just blew up. You know, sometimes you just hit the right post at the right time and it was the right platform. Facebook was very viral platform back then. You know, if you, if you had a good piece of content, it could really explode on Facebook in a way that I don't think any social media network today even has that potential. I, I think it was a very, everyone was gathered in one place. There's not, that doesn't exist anymore. No, there, there was no Instagram yet. Everyone was on Facebook every day. And if you posted content, it, they, they just spread it everywhere. So onto people's timelines. So that's why I got a lot of my initial readers was Facebook and like posts like that. When a post goes viral, you know, you get all these new, new subscribers. So anyway, that one went viral. And then what happened was this other timeline one, which I thought kind of was a dud, went mega viral that same week. Um, and it's, it was a good lesson to me. If something doesn't pop, it's not necessarily that you did a bad job. It's that it might have been the wrong time. It might have not have just hit that critical mass. And if it had then the tipping point, it would have, you know, so it was a lesson to me as well to not like judge too much by numbers and likewise to not judge the other way where, you know, I've, I've had posts like this millennials post that I've, I've posted again a year later and it doesn't go anywhere. And I'm like, oh, wow, you know, I got a little cocky there thinking I wrote the best article in history. And that's why and actually it turned out that it was a little bit of perfect storm and that um, it's not, you know, that article wasn't guaranteed to always go viral. So it was very gratifying for this particular timeline supposed to go viral because it was just like, oh shit, I, I love that one. I'm so happy. Like other people love it too. I suppose one of the things you weren't expecting was, uh, you can't always know your audience and know who you're speaking to. But I think one of the, I'm assuming more surprising and fun things you found out was that Elon Musk was one of your super fans and asked you to work with him. So can you share that story with us? Yeah, that was that was a surprising moment. I, was, uh, I, wrote, a, I wrote a long blog post on AI. This was, you know, this was a little later and instead of, you know, trying to write the edgy, catchy thing, I'm not, I'm less afraid to write a really long, deep dive on something I find fascinating. If I can really write something interesting on a topic that I am obsessed with, again, that the other million people out there just like me are going to probably want to dive really deep into it as well. And again, this was one where I think I, I got a little lucky with the timing. Uh, someone recommended the book Super Intelligence to me by Nick Bostrom. This was 20. For end of 2014 it looks even more wise today than it did then. Um, but I, so I read it and I was like, holy fuck, AI, man. Because at the time it wasn't a big topic really yet. This was one of the books that really got it into the, into the public consciousness. Um, you know, it was kind of a sci-fi, nerdy sci-fi concept till then. It didn't seem real. So, and, and the concept of artificial, you know, narrow intelligence versus general versus super intelligence. This was new. These terms, no one knew these terms yet. So I read that book uh, and then I went and immediately read a couple other books, including like Ray Kurzweil's Singularity is Near and, uh, you know, uh, two or three others. And then I read a bunch of papers and just, 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 just fully sunk into this topic for a couple of weeks. And then basically said, okay, that took everything that I learned. And I said, how can I distill this into, uh, you know, this two weeks into a two, you know, maybe a one or two hour experience for someone reading on the internet. Um, and so I wrote that post and I, and, and it turns out that, you know, Elon Musk is very, takes AI very, very seriously. He thinks it's a real big threat. He, he had, he did then. Yeah. Just by luck, just, just sheer luck. He, he ended up getting sent the article by someone and he tweeted out, you know, the article and said, people should read this. And then I wrote part two, a couple of weeks later, again, he tweeted it out and said, people should read this. So I said, well, you know, wow, he like either someone sent it to him again, or he actually intended intentionally check back, which was like mind blowing at the time. 
And of course, when he tweets it out, then there's this huge spike on Chartbeat or Google Analytics or whatever I was using then. As a blogger, you know, that's like the really fun moment, whether it's Elon or someone else, you know, it's just you write something and, you know, you hope it goes viral. And then you, you know, someone who you admire reads your thing. That's just an extremely gratifying moment. So um, I was very excited and I kind of forgot about it and moved on. And a few weeks after that, um, someone from his team reached out and was like, hey, you know, would you be interested in ever writing about the industries that Elon's involved with? He'd like to work with you to, to do that maybe. So obviously I said, yes, that was really, you know, and it's not just, it's not that I would actually have said yes to anyone in that situation, because as a blogger, you know, you want to, you, you still want to be driving the ship the way you want to drive it. I don't know. Like I, I think Tom Brady is awesome, but if Tom Brady came to me and was like, you know, I want you to write about like the sports industry and, you know, you can interview me for it. I probably would say no. I'd be like, I'd love to meet you, but I, I don't, that's not really my. Yeah, you tell, but you would tell him no to his face. So you'd be like, yeah, let's talk about it. No, Tom, exactly. thanks for the coffee in the last hour. Let's go take a football over to the field. We'll toss it around and chat about it. Yeah. In this case, I already had SpaceX, Tesla, like those were already on my long list of potential post topics. So anyway, this was a perfect storm. It was like someone I admire who, you know, is, will let me work with him and people at his company to write about topics I already wanted to write about. So of course I said yes, spent, uh, really took up a lot of the rest of the year. I did not plan on that. I thought I was going to spend one good week on each, on four posts. So it was going to be an intro post to Elon and his story, then Tesla, then SpaceX, then my, what I think Elon's secret sauce is as the fourth post, which is what I did. It's just that instead of being one week each, it was like th two, two, three months each. And it was a 95,000 word, you know, book length thing, the final four posts. Um, but yeah, it was great. It was a lot of fun. I'm like, I learned a ton and it was, and it was a little like AI where as I'm learning, I'm like, it, that's how you know it's a good topic when the, the topic blows your mind even more than you thought it was going to. Like it's more, in, you're just riveted learning about it. I'm saying, okay, this is going to be great to write about as well. Do you have, did, did you get a chance to work with him on that stuff? Yeah, yeah, no, he was very available. Like, you know, the first time we had a call scheduled, I thought it was going to be like, you know, he, he would say hi for a second. And then I would talk to his like assistant or someone in the office. But he called alone, just him and I just me and him talking for like an, an hour just rambling combo about all the different stuff he's working on and what he thinks about the you know climate change and rockets and why colonizing Mars and Tesla. And, and so then basically the next plan was, okay, I'm going to come out to LA and see SpaceX factory and go out to, and go to Fremont and see this Tesla factory. And, you know, it was this nice arrangement where basically there was a lot of trust. You know, he was like, you know, set me up to meet with a bunch of executives at both companies and a bunch of the people really working on building these things. Let them know they could answer any question I had. And we could just talk about it. And then I agreed to, I'll let you and your team read the posts before I post it. And if there's anything in there you don't want, we'll take it out. So we don't have to stress about it. I'm not going to be like a journalist being like, gotcha, sorry. It's like, I'm not a journalist. I'm a random blogger. So I do things, with, I don't do things like, you know, any kind of official way. Um, and, and to their credit, they took almost nothing out. It was like very specific, like tech specs on certain things, you know, like the bandwidth of the future Starlink satellite, you know, things like that. They basically touched nothing about the posts. And, uh, yeah, I went out there and, and, and so I, so one of the things I did out there is have like a long, you know, two hour lunch with him where again, we got, I had this time I came prepared with a lot of questions and, you know, I watched all of his interviews online. So I didn't want to double up and ask questions that I could find. So I, I really got into stuff that I didn't see online. And, and then I also had about five or six phone calls with him over the next few months, um, you know, where I would build up a bunch of questions and then call and we would have again, these long kind of open-ended chats. Um, he was very open to talking. I think he thinks that communication, you know, explaining, telling the stories of these industries and the, and the companies within them, like, is really important. So he gave me a lot of time. So cool. I think it's great. And it's a really good show sign from him. 
one thing that was going through my mind, I am so curious about. So I know you've got your book. I know you've got you've got your your merch store. Obviously, you're on Patreon. But like, how do you make money? Like, how does Wait But Why in general like operate as a business? Is that something that you talk about and disclose much? Yeah, I'm always happy to talk about it. I feel like there's probably a lot of people out there, like 2013 version of me, who's you know they they want to get into a kind of content creation business, and uh, you know I'm always happy to uh, to talk about it. I mean. I also don't think I'm the best person to to give advice on this because I actually haven't really optimized for money making, um, and I probably should more honestly. Like it's 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 a little bit laziness and just it's kind of icky, but 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 it's it's that if you, if you have basically if you have a, enough volume, if you have you know a thousand readers, unless you they really really love you, where you can say I need, you know I want to charge fifty bucks to each of you a year, for, you know five bucks a month. And a thousand people sign up. Okay, there's a salary, right? But basically, a, a small percentage of the people who like your stuff will actually like love it and come back again and be like long term fans. And a small percentage of them will actually pay for it, right? And so you need a pretty big volume. But if you have enough volume, it the whole story changes and it goes from like, oh, this seems like impossible to make much money. Like if you have a, a thousand readers and two hundred of them will be crushed if you stop doing your thing. So you know, a hundred of them put in a buck a month. Mm. And then, you know, another hundred put in a little bit more and, you know, you end up with, I don't know, an average of 500 bucks a month. Okay, that's fine. It's a nice little side business, but you're not going to live off that. And it seems like, oh, this is so hopeless, right? But it's actually, you know, going from a thousand to 10,000 is not much harder than going from zero to 1,000 and going from 10,000 to a hundred thousand or a hundred thousand to a million. To me, these are all about equal steps. So when you're at a, a thousand, you think, oh, I'm so far from like a, a million, but actually you're like three steps away, I think. Um, three three kind of like viral growth spurts away. And so very quickly, just say you get to 100,000. And now that 500 a month is 50 grand a month. You're crushing it suddenly, right? Or maybe you have a smaller percentage. So maybe it's 20 grand a month. Still, you're doing great, right? You're, you, you have a, you can, you're a full-time content creator and you can support yourself. So if, if something grows, it can, it can go in these, it can plateau for a while and then it can have a growth spurt. And then it can plateau and then it can have a growth spurt. And a couple of growth spurts later, you can go from, you, know, you can multiply what you're making times 100, basically. And so the big lesson is if you can get enough volume, there's plenty of easy, there's plenty of ways to monetize. Mm. You can sell you can sell merch. And if people love your stuff, if, if it happens to be a good fit for merch, you will sell a decent amount. You, know, you, can, you can sell tens of thousands of dollars a year of it. Um, partner with one of these stores and use Shopify. It's not that, you know, which, is, which we do that. We do, we have a store. Uh, you can do stuff like Patreon. It's a new world right now for creators with all of these ways to, to get supported by, donors and so that again that's kind of what i was talking about that can add up if you have enough volume that can be a very good salary uh so we do that and then i do some speaking you know speaking um if you have top if you if, if you're a writer or something and your your topics happen to fit well with like the corporate speaking world which some of mine do ai people like to hear about yeah procrastination is kind of a fun topic for people or you know some stuff on leadership so my stuff has some crossover, not like some people have even more crossover. My stuff, has, if you're right, you know, if you're James Clear writing Atomic Habits, you know, that's a perfect corporate speaking gig click. But if you have something like that, then that can be another source of revenue. So it's like I would advise people to like put their head down and just try to write the best stuff you can or create the best stuff you can. And then if you can, um, if you can get that volume up through a few growth spurts, a couple big moments, and you suddenly are at 100x of what you were before them. Now there's plenty of ways to make a living off of it. Now there's all kinds of people who, you know, you can also, you can do a lot more. You can create a Kickstarter for a game like Matt Inman of The Oatmeal, right? Who makes a trillion dollars selling these games. You can do NFTs and have a whole kind of, you know, ecosystem around you doing tokens and stuff around your brand. I don't do any of that. 
Uh, you can do host events. You can write books. You can write children's books. You can, you know, put out like you know the best of your year uh, in a coffee table book. So there's just a ton of ways to do it. And it. And so it, how come you don't? How come you don't? How come you you do you do some of those things? We we do. I do Patreon. Yep. Uh, I did Google Ads. The Google AdWords in the very beginning, and I just hated how it looked uh, on the set. But that was like that was making about sixty thousand a year. But we stopped because it just seemed like so antithetical to the to the brand and to the vibe. Started Patreon, which I felt uncomfortable about at first. But there's you know there's a lot of people out there who feel like you've done you've given them a lot of value, 100%. and they're more than happy. They, they you build up all this goodwill. How come you don't do? Um... Uh, Twitter subscribe feature. It feels like built for you. I actually am try. I'm gonna try it. I'm gonna try. Yeah, it. set it up this week. I mean, your content especially. Like, if you just put a couple of those behind a paywall, you're like three quarters of a million followers with the owner of Twitter who constantly retweets you. I mean, even mm-hmm. as early as in the last 24 hours, he did again. Yeah. No, I, I think you're totally right. I think. I, I feel like I used to feel like this, and I think a lot of creators feel this, where there's almost this shame totally. in taking money and charging for money, and but they feel like they're doing their big, and it's like the, the, every other part of the economy, someone making value gets paid for, it. and people who want value know they have to pay for, it. and just because the internet happens to be a place where a lot of people do great things for free doesn't mean it's the right way or that you're supposed to do that, and I, that's why that's why I learned with Patreon is like so many people have a, there's so much goodwill out there that you build up when you create good stuff. Um, or you create stuff and you have people that really like it. I still think it, it, there's, there are downsides. If I do Twitter subscription, sometimes I just, I'll, I'll tweet five times a day for a month. There's just a lot of tweets popping into my head every day. And then it just shuts off. I don't know why, but I just have nothing. I, I, don't, I don't even think about it. I'm not even like, I just don't tweet anything for a while. It's just not, I'm not in that zone. And if I had the subscription, people are paying monthly, you know, now there's a little bit of like, oh, I should, right? You have a little bit of like, oh, I should be doing something. So there's something also free about not charging for anything. Um, Even, you know, Patreon. I made it clear when I set it up, like, I will sometimes post four posts in a month and other times it'll go years until then I'll come up with some big book or something. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the the wait but why subtitle is new post every sometimes. True. and And yet I still feel guilty all the time about having Patreon. You know, and when, when I'm not producing something, even if I know the thing I'm working on, if you divided the words into 52 weeks of a year, it's actually, I'm still writing the same amount, but it doesn't feel like that. It feels like nothing's happening and money is coming in. So there is a downside to, to, to the donor model, I think, but, um, but also you could look at it as an upside where it, it kind of kicks your ass to stay productive. You now are accountable. You feel you're doing something bad if, you, if you're not working as opposed to if you don't have anything like that, you can kind of get away with it. And then maybe it's not good for your productivity. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I, I think there are a lot of um, people do courses, you know, they do, they do um, webinars, you know, I just don't, I don't really do that kind of thing. But, um, but I, I think I do about half of the different things I could be doing. And, you know, I just put out a book, right? Charge for the book. So that, that was a nice moneymaker. Um, and I'm doing another book now. And, um, you know, so there, there's, of course, there's also you start a podcast, you have ad revenue, right? You, you can have ads on your blog. There's an endless way to turn content creation into a living if you get enough volume. Or if you have a small group, if you have 2,000 passionate subscribers, you know, 2,000 passionate subscribers can support you if they're passionate enough. You just, the smaller number, the more you have to have people that are like, I would die if you disappeared tomorrow. Why with the book? Why no book? Why no physical book? Yeah, well, for this particular, this wasn't the plan. Well, the, the plan initially was to make it a normal book. 
And, but we were, I was self-publishing this one. I'm doing the next one with Random House, much more normal situation. This one was supposed to be a blog post, ended up being a self-published book. And so there's a lot more flexibility. I can kind of make decisions as opposed to, you know, having Random House saying, well, this is, this is what we're doing. And so you just need to hand in the manuscript and we got it from there. And so Russia and Ukraine, surprisingly, had an effect on this decision because I guess a lot of paper supply comes from Russia. And I guess that slowed down, I think, as I was told. But basically, I was I, I came to understand that due to general supply issues and inflation and Russia and God knows what other things, there was a massive printer shortage, especially for a full color book like mine on big paper. You know, it was going to be a very nice, colorful print book. And I was trying to get it out in, you know, by the end of 2022. Mm. And at the, or, you know, but and I was like, okay, that's going to probably end up being, you know, a little bit later. And then suddenly it was going to be a little bit later. And then we got word that actually the printing is going to delay it like four or five extra months. It was going to be September of 23. And for this topic, which is so timely, you know, it, it's a current events book. Yeah. You really don't want it to come out late. And actually I thought, you know what, like, not only do I not want to wait the extra five months, I don't even want to, I'm realizing like, this is a book I want to have, write the last word and revise the last word and have it out like three weeks later. And I can do that if I get rid of the print book idea. So it was like the delay is what got me first even considering. And once I started considering, it seemed like a no brainer. I can finish, I can, I can have stories in January, 2021 in and have it in people's hands, January, uh, February, 2023, January to February. So that's what I did. I, with the, with the question mark, maybe I'll still do it as a print book later. And I still, we're still considering that, but that was the idea here. And the other thing is that it was going to be a $40, maybe even $50 print book, which is kind of obnoxious. It was just going to be a big, colorful book. Fascinating. Talk, talk to me about the book then, because uh, it's such a fucking important topic, uh, something you're clearly really passionate about. What do listeners need to know? What are some of the big ideas that you explore or the things that you want to communicate for us to think about deeply? Yeah, I mean, this is just me looking at my society and being like, well, everything's really annoying and shitty. And like, I'm scared to write about anything going on with politics or polarization or social justice or the election because I'm going to get slaughtered for it if I write about it. And I'm like, well, that's weird. You know, who's slaughtering me? Why, why do I, why am I as a writer feeling this incredible pressure to not write about this important stuff? Who's putting that pressure on? And if, if I feel that pressure, probably a lot of other people are feeling that pressure who are communicators. And so then are we all not talking about it because there's like bullies out there that will try to ruin you if you disagree with them on this topic. And that kind of pissed me off and made me think, okay, you know what? I'm going to write about this. And that was the beginning of a six-year hole I fell into, basically trying to sum up what I thought was going on in our society and how it got this way and why humans act this way and where it was all going. And so that was the outcome was this book. Basically, I was like, what we can't do is just talk about these topics with the same language and the same kind of worldview that we're talking about. Because you're just going to end up with the left thinks this and the right thinks this. And that's, that's, that's where we are. And this is, this is what these people say and this is what these people say. And every word you use has all this baggage associated with it. And if you use this argument, you're going to get associated with these people. And this, so it's okay. How do we break out of that? And, um, and I, I think in general, like left, right, center, political axis is very constrained. You know, it's okay. That's fine. But it's like a one dimensional horizontal axis, or you can expand it into two dimensions and, you know, talk about authoritarian versus libertarian and, you know, uh, left versus right. And how about like the fact that one person saying that one opinion is just spouting it off because that's what their tribe says. And they don't know, actually know anything about it. And they couldn't argue about it. And they, 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 they're very kind of 
almost like just religiously reciting a scripture when they're saying it. Versus another person saying that exact same opinion, but they know a ton about it and they've thought about it and they're willing to change their mind and they talk to them. They'll, 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 there's a humility there and there's a curiosity and there's, they, they, they have all this evidence behind that view where that's why they have that view and, and, and they're curious about what you have to say and they're, and they're, they're always evolving that view. So to me, we can't just put those two people on the spectrum next to each other and say, well, they both think this. It's like, those are two completely different thinkers. And one of them, what they say doesn't matter to me at all. If what you're saying is just because I know you're just abiding by the checklist that your tribe of stances that your tribe has, uh, and there's nothing I could do to change your mind, and you're not, you don't really know very much about the topic, but you have all this conviction, your opinion means literally nothing to me. You're just a reflection of this phenomenon out there, which is political tribalism. And the other person, the curious, humble, thoughtful person with all this evidence and knowledge behind their viewpoint that, what that person says means a ton to me. I'm fascinated by it. I want to hear more. If they say something compelling, I'm, I might change my mind based on what they say. Uh, and in general, that person's fun to talk to about politics and fun to argue with. And, and the other per- the first person is not. So I said, okay, why don't we create a vertical axis that gets to this idea? If the horizontal axis is what you think, you know, where you stand, the vertical axis is how you think or how you got to where you stand. How did you form that belief in your head? And that I called the ladder. And it's a vertical axis uh, to go along with the horizontal one. And so you have like the high rungs of the ladder, which is the kind of the, the nuanced, thoughtful, humble person I was talking about. That's that kind of way of thinking. It's actual information that you've collected and thoughts. And you've worked hard for those. And then when you get down to the low rungs of the ladder. You are abiding by a tribal checklist. You're repeating the wording in the op-ed you read. You know, you're not actually, there's not much thinking going on. And there's nothing that can change your mind. And there's no humility. You're sure you're right. And you're sure that not only the people who disagree with you, not only are you sure they're wrong, but you think they're bad, terrible people. You know, it's a tribal mindset, right? There's, and, and so, um, and this vertical axis, these rungs of the ladder, they span the whole horizontal spectrum. So you've got people on the left, right, center, far right, far left, and the bottom, and the same, you have all those same people at the top. Then, of course, this, inform, this, this turns into groups working together. You have collaborative, low-rung thinking, which is echo chambers, right? These big political echo chambers where it's very cool to agree with the, the echo chamber's sacred viewpoints, and it's really uncool to disagree with them. And you get a big backlash if you disagree with them, and you're, people think you're a terrible person, and they might even stop being friends with you, versus the high-rung intellectual culture um, is the opposite of echo chamber culture. I call it idea lab culture. And that is the total opposite. It's a place where people like to disagree and they like to play with ideas. And they, the group kind of, everyone says what they're really thinking. And this individual thinking, you know, is, is, is a prized thing there. And speaking with too much conviction makes you seem stupid, not smart. And humility makes you seem smart, not stupid. So it's the exact opposite of the echo chamber culture. And the echo chamber culture makes people in it less smart. And it makes the group itself is really dumb versus the idea lab culture makes the individuals in it smarter because you're being you have your ideas challenged and you're hearing all these different viewpoints but it also has this emergent property of kind of this super intelligence a group of people who are kind of all saying what they're really thinking and they're disagreeing about ideas they can come up with solutions and that's you know in a way that's kind of better than any individual thinking could so that's the core framework is this 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 ladder and how it works with individual thinking and group thinking and then from there i just basically expand that out for a few chapters and apply it to politics. And then I talk about the history of how what's gone on in the last 50 years in the U.S. and um, how that's worked with this ladder and how I think we're coming kind of down the ladder as a society. And then I spend the second half of the book, really a little more, second 60% of the book, talking about um, some of the specific stories in the U.S. Uh, and, and like the social justice movements 
and the MAGA Trump movement and and how, how what these look like through this lens, this framework of the latter. When we look, think when we have the latter in our head, instead of just thinking right, left, center, what do these these familiar stories look like through that unfamiliar lens? Yeah. So what you're essentially saying is that if you were to remove the labels of right, center, left, full stop. And you just ask to identify the behaviors, you get a much better sense of where you are on the ladder. And uh, actually, the labels themselves are confusing because the left don't like to identify like the right and vice versa. If you only have the horizontal axis, I hear people saying stuff like, you know, we need more people in the center. That's just that's not really what they're, they're saying. They're not they don't really mean we need more people that have a, the stances are right in between the left stance and the right stance. What they're saying is we need more people who are nuanced and who are open to debate and who are change their mind and who are solution oriented and not just trying to beat the other side. And to me, what they're trying to say is we need more people up on the high rungs, right? That that's, you know, so I, I think, and, and, and not only, so that gives the center too much credit, right? It's making like a center, everyone in the center is this good grown up, nuanced, productive thinker and everyone on the far left and far right are these tribal extremists. So that's a giving the center too much credit. Uh, and it's also being too hard on the far left and far right. Um, up on the high runs, you have people across the board. You'll have the same person taking a far left stance in one issue and then they're in the center or the far right in another issue. Um, the far, all the far left really is, if you just take it on its own, is just the people who are questioning everything. People who are saying, you know, no, I don't, nothing about the status quo is sacred. I will criticize anything about the status quo and question everything. How can we be doing, maybe everything we're doing is wrong. And all the people on the far right really are doing is saying, maybe we've lost our way. Maybe the way we used to do things is better. Maybe our core values are fine as is. And I want both of those people in the room. Those are important people to have in the conversation. Th those people help us see what we're missing. And you want people on the, in the center and the left, the right, the moderates, and, and, and so to, to, to boil it down to the far right and far left of the problem and we need more people in the center is just totally unnuanced to me and missing. It's not actually accurate. It's like you saying we have to get rid of some of these labels. We also need extra labels. So instead of just saying, if you notice that people on the on a certain stance on the far left, you 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 like what they have to say or you don't like what they have to say. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and assume everyone saying that stance must be that same person. Knowing all of this, it is challenging, uh, you know, on the basis of starting to feel fear when you create content online simply because you have an opinion. And that is never a good place to be. As someone who's created content over the last 10 years uh, so expertly and continue to do so with such brilliant characterizations of this in image form as well, I certainly hope that day never comes for you. But Tim, it's been a massive pleasure to chat to you. Thank you so much for coming on Secret Leaders. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Great chat. That was Tim Urban with a fresh take on how we should embrace each other's differences to move society forwards. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. The episode was produced by Sol Harris. It was brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolliman. See you next time.